Hello, you're listening to the podcast version of ACFM on Navarra Media. And on the podcast version of this show, you'll get the stimulating and mind-expanding discussion from our hosts, but you won't get the music. That's because of the way rights and licenses work in the digital age. So you're really only getting half the picture, but there is an easy way to fix that. If you head over to the navaramedia.com website, you can stream the full show. It's easy enough. Just follow the link in the description of this podcast. Otherwise, enjoy the standalone discussion in this episode of ACFM. Hello and welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idol and I'm joined as usual by Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And Kia Milburn. Hello. And today we're talking about how it feels to be free. How free. I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me. So why do we want to talk about this now, Keir? Well, um, the most obvious, the most obvious reason we'd want to talk about this, about freedom now, what it means to be free, is um, we're all locked in our houses. And it's, it's we're, we're in this period of a real strange historical irony where the people demanding what, at first glance at least, seems to be the most draconian restriction on freedom uh, it, for, for hundreds of years, perhaps, the people who were demanding that were the left. That seems like a strange thing. It was the left who were demanding that we that the state um, closes pubs, etc., and to some, most, most, mostly it was the right who were demanding that these things stay open. You know, that seems like a strange thing. It seems like a strange position. Normally it's, it, um, it would be the, the left would be the sort of civil libertarians. Well, well people have been making these um, lots of comparisons with the sort of onset of World War II, given that it's, you know, that, that's probably the only precedent for the scale of kind of immediate alteration to everyday life and sort of government action that anyone can think of in this country. But that that parallel would really hold there because during the first year of the war, it was consistently, it was the left and the nationalist sort of wing of the Tory party who were demanding more action, like more alterations to daily life, more full-scale mobilisation. And it was the liberal right, it was the liberals and the kind of liberal wing of the Tory party who had basically been sort of hegemonic for the previous decade who were constantly who were resisting that who, who and also who partly they resisted it on the grounds that they assumed that the English people were kind of naturally individualistic and resistant to authority and any form of collectivism and just wouldn't tolerate it wouldn't go along with it and they turned out to be totally wrong and that was really the conditions under which they really lost grip and lost really lost the kind of hegemonic position for a generation and it's really i mean one of the things that's been reported that i've seen which is kind of interesting is is that the government have been disconcerted because they also have expected people wouldn't comply because their their image of what british people are like is that they're sort of thatcherites and they're individualistic and selfish and won't cooperate with um a general project of kind of alteration of the patterns of daily life. And in fact, it's turned out that the, the some statistical comparison has said that the British have, to, have been the most compliant population like in the developed world, like with like high levels of lockdown. So there's this, there is a really interesting parallel there. And it's not really a curtailment of freedom in the same sense. It's a curtailment of certain kinds of individual behaviour. But really, you know, what was going on with the demand for, for a full-scale lockdown was a sort of democratic demand for a democratic collectivist reorganisation of behaviour in relation to you know, a conscious and kind of, you know, mindful, you'd even say, sort of reorganisation, you know, shared reorganisation of behaviour in response to a crisis. And, you know, the, the types of freedom which we were insisting should be restricted are really, you know, forms of behaviour which are mostly, you know, not that enjoyable a lot of the time and are compelled by, you know, the reality as a capitalist existence most of the time, you know, sort of having to go, you know, it's not a great, you know, we're told by neoliberal capitalism and in fact by liberal capitalism going back to the 18th century that, you know, it's a, the, the highest form of freedom is to be able to buy whatever you want whenever you want and go to the shops and choose what you want from loads of other things. And 
you know, it's a cliche of kind of left thought, both sort of radical and just social democratic left thought, that it's not really a form of freedom. A lot of the time that feels like a kind of neurotic compulsion that you're forced into. And a lot of the time it's, you know, it's not, it's it's more liberating just to be able to told, right, you know, you're getting your Ricardo delivery on this date every two weeks. These are the things you can choose from. That's it. You know, I think very few people are getting an Ocado delivery. I'll just say that. <laughs> very few people are getting an Ocado delivery. But also, I think um, I, I, while I agree with you, and I think you put it very well, Jeremy, I think um, shitloads of people are just buying stuff online. I mean, people, the, the online sales of stuff from Amazon, because people are filling. Uh, sorry, I, I, t- I feel like I'm starting to take this role as like the person that brings like the cynical point of view. But um, but there's loads of people buying stuff online and where they can afford to, of course, there's a lot of people who can't afford to and are struggling because they can't get their basic needs met. But there's loads of people buying stuff online and they're filling that void through, you know, a new Amazon delivery every day as if it's kind of kind of kind of normal so that's happening but if we start thinking about like um being locked in our houses it means we are freed from you know the the apparent freedom of of um compulsive shopping you know for many people you're also freed from the compulsion to go to work now that's a huge <laughs> expansion in the realm of freedom i've not really been finding myself with much extra time i must admit but then again you know i can do my work on some is, of it from but home but this is the thing is that i feel like with with that question I think it's like, I don't want us also to talk about people in the other without like recognising what it's like for, for ourselves, but also like in the converse of that, recognising where it's where it's a distinction. So 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 for, like for all of us, for, there, is, there, is, there are loads of people who are now furloughed. That's that's significant. Yeah. You know, that's significant. And I think that definitely hits on. Uh, the, that that main point about work because you're suddenly being paid to not work. This is huge and unprecedented. I don't know what the percentages are, but that's really interesting as a social phenomenon. There's loads of people who are having, and I don't know what the percentages are, but there are loads of people who are having to work from home um, who are finding it easy to work from home. There are other people who are finding it more difficult to work from home because of, you know, social reproduction, like being around your partner, there not being enough space or living in it with loads of housemates or whatever. Again, that's interesting to, to look at. So, um, and then there's, there's people who are still working and they've always worked from home and things don't really change. And then there's the people who are having to go to work. So those, those seem to me like the categories... Um, in terms of work. Yeah. I mean, definitely for us, everyone that I've spoken to from our kind of like crew of people all say like, we're incredibly busy and we don't have more time. That, that, that's what I've heard. I definitely have a different kind of time. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't have a permanent job at the moment, but people who, who do must be really busy. So I imagine lots of people are, who are furloughed, etc., or who, are, who, you know, run small businesses and are waiting for their their cheque from the government to come in June or wherever it's going to arrive. Um, and they've got some free time, but it may not feel like freedom to them because I imagine a lot of them are incredibly stressed and worried about what the future holds for them. Um, you know, and that... that there's, lot, there's all this research about how, um, you know, if you, if you take somebody out of poverty, their IQ rises by something like 10% straight away. Nothing to do with, like, the food you eat or anything like that. It is just that... The stress about being poor, yeah. Well, yeah, but it's also that, like, you know, when you're constantly thinking about, like, how are you going to manage everyday basic needs, like, where's your next meal coming from, you do not... Like, that takes up your cognitive load and you do not have the time for, like, more abstract thinking, which would be measured via IQ tests, et cetera, et cetera. That's really interesting. I think it's the same with your experience of freedom. It's like you are not going to... If you might have free time, but you're not going to experience that as freedom when you're absolutely, like, dashing around thinking about where your next meal is going to come from. I can never remember the name of the person who wrote it. Hang on. It was Billy uh, Taylor. Oh yeah, Billy Taylor wrote I wish I knew how it would feel to be free and it you know it was coming out of the moment of the civil rights movement but it's most famous for you know um Nina Simone's recording of it. I wish I could share all the love 
that's in my heart Remove all the bars that keep us apart She famously performed it. The first time it was widely heard by a lot of people was when she performed it at... Um, at some at a civil rights rally in the mid sixties, then she recorded it in sixty seven, and it's obviously just you know it's an extraordinary kind of you know pain to the idea of the idea of freedom and the idea that freedom's a desirable state but not one that it's possible to free under feel under present conditions. And then I don't know. I think the version we're probably going to play is Cold Blood, is like an early seventies. They're sort of uh, white kind of heavy funk band. And it's just a big, you know, it's a great um, sort of dance floor. A very big building, kind of dance floor soul anthem. I mean, for me... The pl- always the place to start when thinking about the history of freedom as a central concept. Um, actually, I mean, you can go back a really long way. You can go right back to ancient times, when, and basically, what it, freedom is contrasted from slavery, and 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 not be being a non-slave is basically what it means to be a sort of full human being. But but also, um, you know, then it becomes really an important term at the end of the eighteenth century. And I, and for me, it, it's always sort of remarkable that when you think about concepts of freedom. You can't really separate them from that kind of the, the the French revolutionary triptych, you know, free, you know, the French the the motto of the French Revolution is supposed to be liberty, equality, fraternity, fraternity, and fraternity is kind of gendered, and it would be more accurate. But what you, you can reasonably say what they meant was more what we would call solidarity, and um, and obviously the basically the liberal tradition is all predicated on the idea that there's a necessary trade-off between all those things like and the, you can only maximize freedom by limiting equality and solidarity and it's okay to limit the solidarity and to because you and equality to maximize freedom then the conservative tradition also agrees there's a trade-off and has you know varying you know and basically wants to maintain solidarity by limiting inequality and freedom and then I would say the radical tradition is really is always constituted by believing that actually they're mutually constitutive. If you understand them properly, then you know more equality actually means more freedom and it means more solidarity and vice versa. Or at least the sort of utopian strand of the left tradition, which I think we all we sort of belong to. Maybe there are versions of leftists like authoritarian socialism, which sort of agree with the conservative tradition that you have to limit freedom to create conditions for equality and solidarity but I think we're really sort of committed and obviously it's been I mean it's a real I know like I mean even in our own sort of political writing actually it's a big it's a really frequent term of reference for both me and Keir like some idea of kind of radical freedom an idea of freedom that's obviously also the, the more mod, the 20th century kind of version of that big debate is around is um, Isaiah Berlin's famous distinction between negative and positive conceptions of freedom. So, the, but again, the liberal tradition is only concerned with the negative conception of freedom, meaning freedom, what freedom means is freedom from certain things. So it's freedom from constraints. It's free, and it, it's the freedom of the privileged, you know, white, wealthy man, you know, to do whatever, to do whatever he wants. The negative positive freedom distinction is basically comes out of social democratic critiques of that for classical liberalism in the 20th century. So, I mean, not just partly under pressure from the labour movement, socialists, Marxists, communists, you know, the liberals themselves have got to confront the fact that actually it's no good just defending the, the freedom of people who've already got privilege and wealth and power because everybody else is clearly not able to exercise freedom in the same way. So even the liberals from the early 20th century start saying, well, actually, we've got to create material conditions which make people able to actually exercise freedom in a meaningful way. And then... So Berlin calls this positive freedom. So it's freedom to, the freedom to actually do something is the freedom, you know, is different, you know, is is really the social democratic and the socialist idea of freedom, that it's no good just being free from things. And then I think, I mean, and I would say, like, for people like myself and, uh, and, and really people in the kind of, you know, communist and anarchist traditions, that you really, you want to take this even further to some extent and recognise that, well, actually... I mean, the way I always put this is to say, 
actually fr freedom is a sort of uh, as a sort of abstract quality is the is is a sort of highest good for me but uh, but i want to conceive of freedom as not a property that belongs to individuals and their choices it's somehow a, a property that belongs to situations and they're always collective situations and they're and of course, then it becomes quite hard to say, well, how do you know it when you see it? Like, what does that even mean? But the most obvious answer to that question is, well, it, it, you know, freedom is what characterises situations in which certain kinds of novelty become possible, like certain kinds of invention and creativity become possible. And I think that is that sense of enhanced possibility and, and capacity, I think. And that is, I mean, to me, that is a sort of radically non-individualistic sort of conception of freedom. I don't know, what do you think here? <laughs> no no I, yeah I totally totally agree with all of that yeah I'm just suddenly I'm suddenly sort of like thinking hang on uh, I mean, do, what, in whatever circumstances do you experience something and then sort of self-reflectively think this is freedom um, and not and not and, and how can you distinguish that from collective joy and I seem to be leading myself to this idea that there is a more there's an intellectual self-reflective layer to freedom <laughs> which is not necessarily there to collective joy because joy is collect joy is one of those experiences of, of expansion of of freedom or the expansion of your capacity to do things it's not quite the same as freedom though and i'm wondering mm. whether there is there is a need for that to be linked to like a level of understanding I it's a venn, a venn diagram well, maybe that's true, but people do often. I mean, you know, if you talk about what's usually our most typical on sort of, you know, e easiest example of collective joy, you know, people on the dance floor. I mean, it's the feeling of freedom. It's, you know, it's, you know only when I'm dancing can I feel this free. You know, is um, that is the thing people often report. Definitely for me, the crowd, like some people hate crowds. I fucking love it. I don't like... I love. I think. I think part of the reason you tell yourself that you go to demos because of your left-wing politics or because you care about the subject matter. Like I really, really do. Like I'm not. I'm not negating that I only go on demos for things that I care about. But I'm sure I also go for demos. You, or at least I did for twenty years because I was addicted to that feeling of it being in a big crowd. And I. And I, you know, for the vast majority of, of demos that I've been to, I've I've played samba. I've played samba and samba bands for 18 years. And there's this 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 one clip that somebody put up on YouTube from 2011 of called Under the Bridge. And it's this thing where, and this is going to be related to DJing as well, uh, I think, is that people, most people don't know that what happens to sound when you're playing in a massive percussion band outside once you walk under the bridge but we know as a band what happens when you walk under the bridge so the if, if you're playing samba in a demonstration the mestre the person who's leading a samba band at the front tends to know to like drop the beat while you're under a bridge because the acoustics are so intense that the crowd goes completely fucking mental and the the ability of bringing that joy to people but also the feeling of like being in this massive crowd and just losing your head in it and being able to give people that joy and just being completely out of yourself which is very much a, a, a sense of freedom which is linked to collective joy is one that I get from the crowd I mean definitely playing samba in the crowd like nothing nothing I think rivals that for me Well, that's really interesting, and we and we've both been talking about this sort of, you know, idea of freedom as being you know freedom from yourself and kind of get out of yourself. And I mean, the freedom for Aristotle right through to Spinoza, you know, through to a lot of modern thinkers is the is, is the freedom of reason. You know, is you're free from you're free from passions, you're free from irrationality, you're free from anybody else getting involved. And I think there is, but th th there is a kind of interesting continuity between all those things which isn't, you know, they might seem like just to be opposed to each other, but I sort of think they're not on some level, I, f I feel intuitively. Because for me, when we were talking about the question, like, when do you feel free? I keep I kept thinking about the fact, well, also, the other scenario in which, you know, people often talk about freedom is, 
you know, uh, people talk about, you know, doing meditation and doing yoga and doing Tai Chi. You know, they're all things I've done, you know, a fair bit. And, and people talk about a feeling of freedom coming from them. And, and I know exactly what they mean. And when I think about when I, when do I feel free, that is really the most intense experience of it. And it's really interesting to just, but to think like, well, for, experientially, what, what do I mean? And it is actually about a feeling that, I'm very sort of connected to everything around me, but also very kind of self-possessed in a certain way or or not. I feel like all kinds of shit that would normally be imposing on my attention isn't imposing on it. Like mostly just capitalist detritus, you know, you know, Twitter or, or just, you know, the desire for a snack I shouldn't really eat and all that stuff. And um and the, and the sense that that is freedom is really well. This comes back to one of the very first things we talked about actually, like when we started talking about the kind of acid corporatist, acid communism stuff. Because that it can sort of you that can be interpreted. That's a kind of experience that can be interpreted or contained or produced in two different ways. Like it, it is one way in which it is basically allied to. It's on a continuum with the experience of being in the samba crowd or the dance floor in that you're sort of free from a particular mode of being in the world, which is both individualised and self-oriented, but it's also neurotic and not, and it's neurotic in its narcissism. On, and on the other hand, you know, if it's, if it's done sort of wrong from our point of view, then that kind of, you know, mindfulness, as we've said before, just becomes another version of that neurotic narcissism. Me and Bobby McGee is a song was first. It was written and performed by Chris Christopherson. It's, uh, the best known cover of it is Janis Joplin, sort of great late sixties rock singer. It was you know it was a really popular tune for the Grateful Dead as well, and it's famous for this line, isn't it? Um, Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And that was became an anth- an anthemic kind of line for the counterculture, and it really does resonate with the the claim we're always making that the counterculture wasn't primarily about you know individualist libertarianism. It was it was partly it always was based on a critique actually of kind of you know liberal consumer capitalism, and that freedom is just another word. For nothing left to lose, you know. It's, I mean, it's saying, isn't it, that you know, it's saying that the kind of it's a critique or it's in one line of the whole bourgeois conception of freedom that you know, if you're to be free in and of the negative conception of freedom, so to be free is to be absent of any attachments to or responsibilities to other people, the wider community, you know, and you know, and for most people that would indeed just mean you've got nothing left to lose. You know, you've got nothing. All the things that the bourgeois concepts of freedom you know, liberates you from are actually the things that make life worth living for most people. I, I interpreted that differently, actually, because it's a song about two drifters in a sort of call and response sort of thing. I was thinking of it more as you know, when you've got nothing less to lose, like the condition of the proletariat for Marx or whatever. <laughs> so basically, you know, the, the, the proletariat is free in a couple of different ways. You know, it's free from, like, serfdom, etc., but it's also free from... Um, no, yeah, nothing to lose but your change. Nothing to lose but That's your change, true, yeah. And it's yeah. like, so it's like yeah. the big fear for the for the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie right through, like, early capitalism was the proletariat have got no investment in this society staying the way it is. They've got nothing to lose. Therefore, you know, they're a dangerous, they're a dangerous class, the most dangerous class, which is why you need to you need to give them a little bit of property to sort of get them interested and align their interests a little bit more with uh, the, the maintenance of the system, which is basically, mm. you know, you can see through the 20th century. Well, that's true. And you can also read it in terms of the, the West Coast countercultures, particular appropriation of Zen Buddhism, you know, it was it's kind of Jack Kerouac and writing about the Dharma bums. And in that case, it's a positive thing. You know, to be a drifter, to be a hobo, is to be the person who has no attachments and therefore has nothing left to lose and therefore is free. I've got to say, I don't. I think the, the song, it's a mournful song, though, about the condition of being a drifter, I think. I don't think it is celebrating it. I, th- I think it's critiquing that assumption, actually. I think, it, I think it's the, the hippies critiquing the beatniks belief that it's cool to have no attachments and just be on the road and and drifting because it's kind of sad it recognizes it 
but I think it's sad about it. I've always heard it that way, especially from you know Janis Joplin's sort of interpretation of it. I mean, Janis Joplin's version was released posthumously, which adds an even more tragic tone to the <laughs> to the whole thing. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Like, there's some key things for me that that when I have them or don't have them, like, I feel the restriction and the bind versus I feel like I'm, I'm free, you know, and they are, they are related to, like, policy and society or whatever. But, like, for me, f- freedom, firstly, is, is not being reminded that I'm a woman by the world. So that's not the same as not remembering I'm a woman or not feeling like a woman. It's the being reminded that I'm and I, that I'm not a person, I'm a woman. So for example, like in on on a on the burner which uh, James Butler is does this this from Navarra does this this great little thing in the morning um which I'm a big fan of um and there was a point where he said um you know maybe what you should do is you should go out and have a walk at night as part of uh your you know your daily walk for covid and I thought I can't go out and do a walk at night because it's not safe for me I can't, I don't have that. And that's where the world reminds me that I'm a woman. Now, maybe there'll be certain places that I lived in. And to be honest, when I lived in Argentina for three months, because there were these big avenues, I mean, fuck, I walked every single night for hours because I felt like I couldn't do it in my daily life here. So that's, so that's one thing is not being reminded by the world that, that, that I'm a woman. That's really important. So feeling safe is a necessary precondition to feeling free. That's what you're saying. Oh, that's interesting. I've actually not thought about uh, but, it that way. But feeling safe is not sufficient to feel free, but it, but it is necessary. Yeah, and related to that is the freedom to control my body, like to have an ac- access to, abor- to an abortion, to not have my body be under somebody else's control, which is a, is a huge thing. But also I think related to the body but not necessarily to being a woman is the free the freedom i feel from having a strong healthy body that i can run and jump and breathe with like a lot of people don't have that and that's very constricting to not be free with your body um and and finally i think not not being in love like freedom from love for me um is is a really big one i definitely do not find romantic love freeing i love love but i i feel very a very restricted person when i'm in love so those are my thoughts on what it feels to be free i I think it does open up this really interesting thing about like freedom freedom is not always experienced as a pleasant thing you know it can be hugely disruptive and be um massively resisted do you know what i mean that's a really good point and it, and it also that's the thing i was going to say before actually about thinking you know the experience the the experience of freedom you know after sort of meditating or something because of course there's this whole the whole line taken by sort of orthodox buddhism is actually that's the only way you can really be free is to be a monk and have this completely regimented life where you're completely free from any kind of attachment and one of my sort of fit and one can easily imagine the, where we are right now with, with the COVID crisis and the public response to it and the looming threat of climate change and the growing power of Californian techno-capitalism, one could really, uh, one could really fear that where we're, what, we're, what we're heading to for the next phase of sort of capitalism is actually something which isn't Orwell. It's, it's old as Huxley. It's Brave New World. It will be a world in which we're basically ruled by these sort of benign technocrats. You know, we've all got Amazon vouchers. We all get a certain number of Amazon vouchers every week. We're all allowed to do psilocybin, you know, smoke weed. And we're positively encouraged, you know, to do two hours of yoga and meditation a day. Like I've previously said, you can only do, you would only do under post-capitalism. But we don't have any, you know, we don't have any real involvement in the decision-making, etc. I mean, it is, you know, that sort of Californian dream, you know, that, that could be where we're heading. And that would be the conditions under which lots of people would get to experience and lots of the kinds of freedom we've been talking about positively today you know you get to feel a sense of security you get to sit sit, you know a feeling of kind of health and fitness you're not ruled by the tyranny of choice blah 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 and yet 
I would hate it. Yeah, that's that's uh, that. In fact, is the future. I now I currently think is it's the job of the left most like vigorously to to refuse and resist. Like, but then there's a question. Well, why? You know, what? Why is that? You know, why? Why do we not want that? Then why do we not just want benign technocrats? You know, allowing us to just do f- work four day weeks and do loads of exercise and be be healthy, but not really having a, a say in anything. I mean that 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 probably is one of the big strategic problems is you know how do we connect democracy to a lived sense of freedom so some some you know sometimes it does feel like that because you're getting connection to other people but quite often democracy is experienced as as um a lack of freedom (laughs) most people just want lots of things in in the world to function uh uh, you know the infrastructure to function etc so they can go on and, and make more important decisions but ultimately you need to have a you need some sort of control over how that infrastructure and all that, like, you know, hidden conditioning works. I mean, the thing that capitalism doesn't let us, and especially neoliberalism doesn't let us have, is, is precisely the opportunity to make democratic decisions with with groups of other people that have some real effect on the world. I mean, that's, you know, that's the fundamental sort of premise in my book, Common Ground. And that that's the freedom it doesn't give us, to, like, work, cooperate meaningfully with other people in, in a collaborative way. I put on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, for songs about freedom. One that came up a lot was um, Richie Haven's Freedom, and people were particularly just sharing this video of of, of um, Richie Haven's uh, performing this song, the opening song at Woodstock. So you can see how it's got like an iconic um, position in the counterculture in that respect. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Freedom, 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 freedom. Sometimes I feel like a motherless Well, that was, I mean, the freedom, I mean, this is so much a persistent theme for us, but freedom and the nature of freedom, it was the fundamental question posed at the end of the 60s. Because of what, I mean, everybody's, the reaction against the post-war settlement and Fordism was for everybody was framed in terms of the lack of freedom that it offered to so many people. But the question of what freedom people wanted instead of what they had then, you know, was was really divergent. So, you know, the counterculture, you know, the women's women's liberation movement wanted one version of freedom, which would actually be sort of what we would think of as a sort of radical democracy and kind of the opportunity for you know, you know, form potent collectivities, as I would put it. But then, you know, there was also you know the the neoliberal proto neoliberal version of freedom that it, was, it would just be a kind of individual freedom from the kind of burden of being a taxpayer and a you know responsible member of social democracy. But it's really it's it's so potent at that moment, the whole question of freedom. And, of course, the new right take it up, and we haven't really talked about this. I mean, the, Thatcher and Reagan, you know, a big part of their appeal, their, their appeal to certain constituencies is they're promising freedom. You know, they're promising freedom, but it's the freedom, it's, you know, it's the freedom from the state. It's freedom from having to be a taxpaying member of a society to some extent. What songs would you associate with that, then? Well, it's really hard to say, isn't it? Um, it's like Rush, Rush or something. <laughs> yeah, well, they didn't. Pro- they didn't produce good music. That was one of their problems. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> right, I'll say, I'll mention. I mean, a record from the seventies, which f- fits into all that narrative in a really interesting way, is Asford and Simpson's "Stay Free." The chorus is like you've got to stay free, and but it has this. But like a lot of those disco songs, it has this really deliberate ambivalence. That on the one hand, it, it, you know, the chorus is kind of fun to sing, and you think about you know, sing along as a crowd, and you think about how you want to be free. But also, the lyric is actually a critique of someone who is just a casual individualist who doesn't want to have any attachments who doesn't want to be tied down and it's a critique of it's basically saying well that's a shallow way to live and that if that's how you live you, you're not really going to be happy so it's really sort of um interesting and that again you know i mean there was this real you know there's obviously there is a real sophistication i think to the way in which people coming out of things like gay liberation are thinking about those things in the 70s because they're, they're having to think about the fact that they both want to be free just interpersonally from 
you know, traditional moral constraints, but they also want the freedom to, you know, to form relationships publicly and to, to you know, to be kind of part of a community. Um, so that is really kind of interesting. I mean, that kind of... It's an interesting question, that Thatcherite Reaganite moment, though, actually, is it like the early 80s? I mean, what is, you know, there are... You know, there are there are so in music there are some heroic assertions of sort of individual sovereignty, but they're really vague. And the sort of Spandau Ballet I always think of is like, you know, the Thatcherite band. Oh, but uh, gold is such a good song. Though. Yeah, I know it is. No, it's a good anthem. I think I must be getting old because <laughs> one of the ways I've been thinking about freedom recently is is pairing it with responsibility, <laughs> right? Um, and that, I think that links to this idea. It's of just like, that you've to... had COVID, mate. I know you're in denial. <laughs> I know that you're in denial that you have, and I think you're coming round to it. But I think, I think you know, you've had, you've had it, mate. You've had it. No, but I'm trying to think through this whole like, what, what is this consciousness raising project? It is about trying to understand your position in the world, your effect on the world, and how the world affects you, to to expand your own with freedom. But like. That re- it's also about understanding your the impact that your actions have on the rest of the world, and that's where the sort of responsible responsibility comes in. So it's not neoliberal responsabilization which strips away all politics and says it's your individual character that's produced that, right? And that all the neuro- neuro- neuroticism that comes, or the neurosis that comes with that, right? It's the opposite direction. It is like it's like you need thinking and study and reason to try to work out how you fit into this sort of, like, the political structuring of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, like, so one of the one of the ways I've been thinking about it is, like, there's we always associate youth, the period of youth, with, with like, a certain kind of freedom, right? Because it's it's the t- period of time where you, where you escape responsibility. Do you know what I mean? You're no longer... You're in no theory, long... in the West. Well, in theory, and, and like barely in the West, you know, and it may only be like a... It might, might be something produced from a post-war experience of, of a certain section of society. But it, but the, the theory is something like, you know, you're under the control of your parents when you're a child, uh, and you're not supposed to have any responsibilities. It's supposed to be this time of innocence, it's all this sort of stuff. And then when you're an adult, you have your own family, you have a, you have a job and all those responsibilities. You know? So there's this time of self-reinvention in the middle, which is called youth but like that's it's a pretty childish version of freedom right and i've been increasingly thinking that like like one of the things that this that the the this current pandemic and lockdown has really brought home to me is this is this that that there's a sort of jeremy clarkson type idea of freedom right (laughs) which Which is is do you want to tell do you want to tell listeners who that is if they don't know yes for listeners uh, outside the uk jeremy clarkson but loads of listeners it's not a lot of people won't know who he is i promise you for listeners with a good fortune not to know who Jeremy Clarkson is, Thank he, you. he started off as a as a, mo- a, a a journalist writing about motor cars, and he did a sort of um, a program about um, about um, motor cars called what's it what's it called Top Gear Top, Top Gear, Gear. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus that that hypnotherapy to hypnotherapy to block Jeremy Clarkson out of my mind has really worked um, yeah Top Gear and like basically he he sort of worked he, 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 there's this, my there's friend this, nearly got run over by him yeah I'm not surprised basically it's that idea it sort of bleeds into that sort of like right wing anti wokeness conception of freedom basically right which is sort of fast this, cars. So it's like, yeah, freedom to like, you know, freedom to do what you want to do. I'm going to drive my car around really fast. You know, uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to really care about the consequences. And in fact, I'm going to take the piss out of people who do care about the consequences for all this sort of stuff. You know, basically, that is that that whole ideology, and and so that in like what we can think about, like that whole ideology is like a machine to preemptively prevent consciousness raising right because consciousness yes. raising is the opposite it's, it's basically let's think about like the preconditions that make our sphere of freedom possible and what are the constraints the structural constraints which are limiting our conception of freedom you understand those and then you try to work to remove some of those constraints or to alter the preconditions so that the realm of freedom for everybody is 
increased. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and related but, to that is is what what is your freedom to dependent on for you to be able to get in your and drive your fast car? Exactly. Like, who's cooking your meals? Who's cleaning exactly. your streets? Who's all of doing all of these things? Like. Do you know what I mean? Regardless of what you think about the driving the fast cars in itself, it's the it's the attitude and arrogance that comes with it. Yeah, totally. But it's it's all based on the idea of well, basically, I think it's lived. It's based. Uh, I want to just make the point about like that is anchored in a lived experience of freedom or sort of autonomy, right? Which is you know basically the the sense of act, the actual sense of freedom that I impo- it's possible for me to do all of these things, um, and if somebody starts to point out the consequences of me doing those things, then I experience that as a limit to my freedom. They're trying mm-hmm, to stop me mm-hmm, doing things. It's trying to mm-hmm. st- which is where the whole anti wokeness thing comes from, and like I think what's happening at the moment because we're all locked in our houses suddenly we can all of those sort of preconditions, all of the sort of hidden work that goes in, which allows us to have this freedom which is like infrastructural work, i.e. all of the post postmen, etc., post people, post women, post people, or whatever. How do you say that these days? Post, <laughs> postal these workers. These days. These days. These, oh, days. these days. Jesus Christ, I'm channeling. <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson. Clarkson. You can't even, you can't even <laughs> talk about it without occupying. It's political correctness gone mad. It is. <laughs> 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 a, a post person just sounds weird. Post person sounds like a post humanist. Yeah, it does. It does. It does. It does. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, I, is that like there's <laughs> lots of work that goes on, which is normally obscured, which permits your sense of autonomy, right? If you've got a bit of wealth or except or whatever, uh, and lots of that is like this infrastructural work. Some of it is like this, what you call the social reproductive work. Who's doing the dishes? Who's doing the, the cleaning, etc. Most of the time, that's hidden. You don't have to con- bring it to mind about, you know, oh, what, is my freedom based on that? All of a sudden, you cannot ignore it because they're that, the that key work, workers. Well, no, but th- that work can kill you. In fact, you not only have to recognise it, but you have to recognise the conditions under which that work takes place because all of a sudden, the conditions of the workers in the Amazon fulfilment centre could make the difference between you catching COVID-19 or not and therefore make the difference between you dying or not. So all of this hidden stuff suddenly becomes visible, which I think puts a lot of pressure on this sort of... that sort of... Um, that anti-woke version of freedom... Because because that because that anti woke version of freedom is also related to the to this idea that like we are responsible for our own outcomes in life. Do you know what I mean? So Wendy Brown talks about it as neoliberal responsibilization. Whatever our our outcomes are, we're responsible for that. Which is like the elimination of all politics and structure, and its reduction just to personal characteristics. I suppose like that whole anti wokeness, uh, right wing libertarian version of freedom is sort of like stuck in some sort of perpetual adolescence version of freedom. Do you know what I mean? And in fact, when you become an adult, the adult is learning to take on the responsibilities uh, that that come with recognising your position in the world. Do you know what I mean? And in some ways, that in some ways that gets that's been interrupted by by the sort of way neoliberalism s- structures the world. Do you know what I mean? In well, that fact, was all... a... no, no, go on. I just remembered the book by um, uh, Adam Kotzko, "Why We Love Sociopaths," which is a little book. Um, and it sort of looks at contemporary TV, basically. It looks at contemporary. Oh, yeah, it's quite good. That one. Yeah, it looks at contemporary TV and sort of says, "Look, all of the heroes, or mo- many of the heroes of contemporary TV." And this is this was in the two thousand, so it's probably like a decade out of, out of date. They're all like sociopaths of some sort, and he point to like Tony Soprano, um, uh, or or even Homer Simpson, who's like a bit of a sociopath of various various different types. Um, and he says, "Like, what, what's going on there?" And like, and the other, the other sort of person who, or the other sort of realm of TV would point to is like The Apprentice, etc. And who hosted The Apprentice in the US? It was um, Donald Trump, right? And so he's so the, the sort of argument could go. Some this was this was written before Donald Trump was pre, was president of the US. But like, like what Donald Trump performs is a certain a certain type of freedom, like, and it's like a, a fantasy version of a sociopath freedom. Which is sort of like you know the freedom of, you know, what would it look like if I basically didn't give a fuck about anyone else, and not only didn't give a fuck about anyone else, broke all the rules, could you know, and the rules just didn't apply to me, etc. That would look like a certain form of freedom, and that's the freedom that Donald Trump sort of performs. You know what I mean? The more he breaks the rules, the more uh, um, he seems to be immune from like either social shame, or. Um, or, you know, uh, uh, being held to the rules of politics and all that sort of stuff, the freer he looks, do you know what I mean? There is a sort of form of, like, this sort of sociopathic 
freedom that they're, that uh, John, Boris Johnson sort of performs it to some degree, but you know, not not so much. I think. I mean, this is Richard Sennett's, you know, argument in the corrosion of character is that sort of advanced post-Fordism just removed the conditions which actually allowed most people not to be sociopaths, you know, by taking away stable jobs and taking away, you know, sort of stable communities. And it's it's really true. And I think it's, it's one of those things which can, you know, it, it can manifest itself in dangerously reactionary forms, you know, that people, the desire people have to be able to be part of a group and, and have the conditions of being able to take responsibility for other people but it can also you know manifest itself in socialist forms and, yeah that's really interesting. i mean that's one of one of the things about covid i remember tweeting this in the first week one of the things about the covid oh, experience is i like it and i'm yeah, good at yeah, it, like it. <laughs> and um you know one of the things that was going on in the first week especially with all the mutual aid groups is people were just obviously delighted and relieved to have the opportunity to like do something for other people you know which we're just inhibited from doing by contemporary capitalism. I've always felt it was inevitable at some point we would talk about loaded by primal screen. So loaded notionally by Primal Scream, but in fact it's by Andy Weatherall, and the, like the story of it is Andy Weatherall gets he he he's he's DJing and he meets some of Primal Scream Bobby Gillespie I think at a rave, uh, and they ask him to, to to remix a song of theirs I'm losing more than I'll ever have, and he's never remixed anything before, and he, he comes back with some like boring mix of it and they say no no just destroy the whole thing so when he produces Loaded it's basically got none of the hardly any of the original song on it and he just you know clips from different things um and it's sort of it's sort of famous for the for the opening sample which is you know just what is what just what is it that you want to do we want to be free you want to be free to do what you want to do we want to get loaded we want to have a good time we want to have a party and that's a sample from i think it's probably peter fonda saying that and it's from a like 60s motorbike film called wild angels and like so a lot of this is, you know, you can see how in the 90s that like it was called like 88, 1988 was called the second summer of love. And there was lots of self-reference uh, or consciousness, conscious self-referential sort of referencing of the concepts of freedom around in the in the late 60s, etc. Probably in a more in a more um, a depoliticized form. Uh, you'd say and so you'd probably what you might put alongside that is the soup dragons i'm free um from 1990 which you know the video of which is right re- real sort of like um self-conscious psychedelia etc you know it sort of tells you something about the sorts of the the sort of sense of that early 90s and the sorts of freedom that people were reaching for they were basically reaching for the sort of for, for sort of the 60s type of conception of freedom but like in a in a stripped into a large degree of the sort of more overt po- political elements to it would we do you want to talk about like that gala freed from desire that that's probably from 1990 91 or something like that as well isn't it how does that go is that free from desire that one yeah yeah i love that song my lover's got no money, he's got his strong beliefs. My lover's got no power, he's got his strong beliefs. My lover's got no fame, he's got his strong beliefs. My lover's got no money, he's got his strong beliefs. One more and more. I mean, at the time, I used to sort of joke about it, being Buddhist house, but it just, it is, like, it's... I mean, the chorus is there. My love has got no money, he's got no strong... He's got his strong beliefs. My love has got no power, he's got his strong beliefs. And it's critiquing, you know, people who want more and more and more. And um, it's, and it's, you know, and the line is freed from desire. It's absolutely the Buddhist, not just Buddhist, it would have to be said. It's the whole, the, every contemplative tradition, including Greek philosophy. But 
but it's also but it's a language which have been would, would have been i mean i'm sure it was consciously buddhist i mean i'm sure it would buddhism had enough currency in popular culture that you wouldn't use the line freed from desire you wouldn't use that mind and senses purified unless you'd been immediately influenced by sort of some kind of buddhist practice even though mindfulness wasn't a big thing at the time so yeah so it's anti so it's ba- and it's basically advocating you know the you know the experience and the the practice of being you know anti indeed freed from any kind of desire for consumer goods or attachment or power or fame or money and just experiencing a sort of um you know that kind of freedom and you know and it was a sort of dance floor anthem and it was really i mean it was a sort of pop dance floor anthem i mean i remember hearing it mostly at kind of um quite cheesy sort of gay you know gay nights it was a big thing. Um, you wouldn't get it at kind of serious rave, you know, sort of serious rave clubs. But I remember thinking it really seemed to be trying to capture something about the sort of what a lot of people felt rave was supposed to be about, that mo- the lyrics of most sort of rave songs didn't. I mean, the lyrics of most sort of rave were sort of quite cheesy, you know, really was sort of, you know, either just meaningless or sort of cheesy romance or something. And yeah, it was really sort of extraordinary. I mean, in terms of that, what you were saying about responsibilization and 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 um, and uh, you know neoliberalism, here, I think that's a really good point. I think that's really nice. The fact that what we're what we're after with consciousness, with our ideal of a raised consciousness, is a, it's not irresponsibility, but it's a completely recalibrated notion of responsibility. Because on the one hand, you know, the, I mean, for me, one of the first. At you know, at the first effects of consciousness raising, like with stu- you know anything that looks like consciousness raising for me for students or whatever, is that they they free themselves from the effects of responsabilization. Like they learn to recognise that the, the that their problems, like their their emotional problems, their social problems, are mostly not their fault. They're not their personal fault. They're the result of social, you know, wider social forces. But on the other hand, you also want people to have a certain sense of agency, and you want people to have a sense of agency that they that is it is worth trying to do things in the world. It's trying to do things with other people, being part of groups, etc. And then, but also, there's a kind of third layer even beyond that where you also want people to recognise that look, this, the way historical change works is we all try to do shit, and most of it doesn't work. And then we get it, we dust ourselves off, you know, have a break, dust ourselves off, and try again. And it's only because we keep doing that and we live with it and we don't get too miserable that anything ever actually gets done and most and 99.99% of historical progress is outcomes that no one really exactly wanted and weren't exactly what anyone predicted but they wouldn't have happened if people hadn't had a go you know if people hadn't had a go at doing the great general strike of 1926 we would never have got the national health service you know even though most of the people who did it probably felt like it was just a failure and a defeat um, and they weren't even really related and and that is to have achieved this form of elevated raised consciousness that we all want I mean, it's to sort of have got yourself into the position of being able to kind of live like that i think you live it in that way which is hard but it's also like i'm always coming back to this scene it's also why i'm so kind of interested in things like buddhism because i sort of think at least certain strands of buddhism they're sort of after something very similar and that you're after this relationship to the world and events in which on the one hand you have no you're completely detached from any notion of personal attachment and responsibility on the other hand you cultivate this quality of compassion where you are completely involved in you know other people and, and your effects on other people all, all the time and yet you are somehow free from any sort of you know self-destructive you know sense that you know sense of sort of ownership of those of those effects and i think but i think you know clearly that's not the only way to get it you know you can get it through you know a kind of mature form of activism that is sort of what freedom feels like isn't it as well at, at its kind of highest level i mean not that i can claim to experience that for more than about five minutes a month but This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.